Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting content you love. Thanks! So we've been in this worship series for the last several weeks on faith, hope, and love, the trinity of Christian virtues. And we've talked about each one sort of one at a time now a couple times. And tonight, we're going to talk about all three in three brief talks, uh, Janice and then Carissa and then myself. Um, And in between those talks, we'll be reading just one scripture from Philippians chapter 2. It's a, a poem with a little bit of intro by the Apostle Paul. It's probably the lyric of an ancient Christian hymn that Paul included in his letter to the Philippian church. And in this hymn, the condescension of Jesus is described. That is how Jesus came down, condescended from the lofty heights of heaven to share our human experience. And we'll read it several times tonight in different forms. For tonight, uh, for my reading, we'll begin with a responsive reading. I'll read the parts that say leader, and you, you join in on the parts that say everybody. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. If then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of an enslaved person, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Hi, church. Hi, I'm Janice. My Pronouns are she, her, and I'm a co-conspirator here at Galileo. Um, My story is a lot about faith, but I would be remiss to 
if, if I said that it didn't include a lot of hope and a lot of love, but mostly faith. And just for content consideration, I'm going to try to keep that part surface level, but just know this will contain um, talking about disability, parental grief, a little bit of alcoholism, and that should be it. <laughs> okay. So I don't mind if you all know how old I am. So I was born in 1980 in September, and about when I was about three months old, my parents realized that I couldn't see. And my mom took me, apparently, I don't remember this. I don't know why I don't, but <laughs> to a lot of specialists. And um, my, my paternal grandfather passed away just before Christmas that year, about a week or so before. And my p mom had to tell my dad and everybody else at my grandfather's wake that I have a condition called optic nerve hypoplasia, which just means my optic nerves are too small and I, there's never gonna be a cure. And my parents are rock stars, um, annoying rock stars, but <laughs> they're getting crabby in their older age, but still. <laughs> um, so my mom said she cried until I was about three and because she didn't know how I was going to live and what my life was going to look like. But I changed all that one day on a school bus. Um, my parents put me in school when I was 18 months old because they didn't know how to teach me how to do things like, you know, dress and undress and walk and whatever. But, oh, well, I was already walking by then, but... Um, <laughs> um, so I was on the school bus, and this little boy, Andrew, would not leave me alone. And he, I do remember this. He was poking me and poking me and calling my name. And I basically made him stop. And when the bus driver told my mom about that, she says, you know, I don't condone what you did, but all I could do was laugh because that is the day I knew you were going to take care of yourself and you'd be just fine. So all of my life, my parents have been advocates and showed me how to be advocates. And I wonder in my adult life how much of an advocate they actually innately knew to be or learned along the way. But my blindness has never, ever been a barrier for me. It's a barrier for other people. But for me, it's one of my greatest gifts. And ever since I was uh, able to talk, I would tell people, no, I wouldn't have surgery to be able to see. What, what's wrong with me? God made me this way. And when I would hear, well, when you get to heaven, you'll be whole again. I was like, have you looked at me lately? I, I'm pretty whole, pretty <laughs> round and whole. And, <laughs> and, you know, life has its highs and lows. Life has, you know, I had to learn very quickly that friends come and go. I'm not one of those who had a childhood friend that we were best friends since we were five and we're still hanging out. I have different friends from different chapters. And I just have faith that whoever will, that I need will be there. Even when... I didn't know what I believed. I always had faith that there is a higher power out there keeping me safe, watching over me. When I was 19, I did a, an internship in DC. Oh, by the way, my parents 
really, really favored critical thinking, wanted us to find our own way. My mom was disillusioned by the church being a Methodist preacher's daughter. Um, so they weren't churchgoers, but anywhere, if we wanted to go, we could go. If I wanted to be in a play, they would take me to the auditions. If I wanted to go on a, a trip out of state, if we had the resources, I could go. And they never, ever said, hey, you should stay inside. They said, get on the bike, fall on your ass just like your brother, and learn to get up. <laughs> Even when my dad would drink and drive. I just knew I was going to be safe. And when my parents advocated for me to be in regular classes, what's now called inclusion, we were at a carnival, and it went back when we could actually do Halloween carnivals, you know, and uh, they had a jail, and you could get, buy a ticket and put whoever you wanted to in jail. And my dad put the principal in there, and, and, and he just looked at her with a serious face and went, Monday morning, my daughter, regular class. Got it. Boy, I was embarrassed, but I'm so thankful for those moments because it taught me to advocate and ask the questions. When I was little, my dad would try to order food for us, and I caught on pretty quickly. When I was about three or four, he asked, what are you going to have? And I said, well, I'm not going to tell you because I want to order it myself. When I was 19, I went and did an internship in D.C., and I would just get on the train and ride it and get off because the streets were on a grid pattern, so if I knew where my letters and my numbers were, I could just explore around. My 43-year-old person wouldn't do that now, but I didn't, I just knew that faith of being detached from form and outcome for me is what faith means, just knowing that it's, it may not happen the way you want. You may have to, you might be the pendulum, but everything in my core beliefs, everything always works out the way it needs to, even if it sucks, and everything does happen for a reason. And when people underestimate me, it just makes me bear down and work harder. And sometimes I get tired of fighting, and I do wonder, what if? But in those anxious moments, I just know that everything's going to be okay. And I really hope that you all will use your voices, ask the questions, be your own advocate, because the more you advocate for you, the more you're advocating for the rest of us, and the more you are or the less the system has power. And I just want to thank you all for being our chosen family, for the friendships that we're building here. And just know that disability does not mean heartbreak. It does not mean tragic life. It doesn't mean that you aren't able to live a full, fulfilled life. Hi, church. <laughs> my name is Carissa. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I am a co-conspirator at Galileo, and I am also a, an ordination candidate that y'all are sponsoring. So. Yay. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but I've been thinking a lot about hope this week. In a world of Hallmark cards, 
Hope feels simple, easy to come by, and if I'm honest, kind of like a cheap commodity. But let's be real. When you're stuck in a moment you can't get out of, Hallmark hope gets pretty slippery. Pretty quickly, you'll lose your grip on hope. And when that happens, it becomes damn hard to talk about, much less hold on to. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's easy to talk about hope when your family is thriving. It's another thing to hold on to hope when you're driving your child to the hospital for cancer treatments that may or may not work. It's easy to talk about hope when your friend is about to graduate or get married or start a new job. It's another thing to hold on to it through the job loss or the divorce. It's easy to talk about hope when you're all sitting around the conference table talking about the world God wants. It's another thing to hold on to that hope when protesters stand outside your door on Sunday evening. With these inevitable life complexities in mind, I can't help but wonder, can hope be separated from optimism, idealism, wishful thinking, and empty, shallow platitudes? And could it become more useful, real, practical, and helpful? Growing up, my family moved around a lot, and we did not have much money. Nearly all the houses we moved into were old and grimy, with peeling linoleum, dingy lighting, and ugly wood-paneled walls. As the oldest of five siblings, as soon as we unloaded our stuff and got the younglings settled, I'd grab all the cleaning supplies I could find and get to work scrubbing down the kitchen. And I do mean scrubbing it. I'd use scrapers and scrubbers, toothbrushes and soap and baking soda to attack every little nook and cranny, top to bottom. And I wouldn't stop until the entire kitchen was cleaned. Now, of course, like any child, I love to see the stress just leave my mom's face upon seeing my handiwork. But my greatest satisfaction, my deepest joy, was in the fact that I had somehow invited in possibility. Like, here's where we could store our cans in our bread. Oh, and that's where we could cook a pot of beans. That's where we could start stockpiling spices. And there's where we could gather while we ate. And here's where we'd wash dishes together. I didn't know it at the time, but my little efforts were conjuring a tangible, gritty sort of hope, for me at least. In cleaning, I was opening a doorway and inviting in the possibility of capital L life. I like to imagine that while I was at it, I was reminding my family we were partakers of something bigger than the nitty gritty of our circumstances, something more mysterious, something which came from outside of ourselves, something whose substance was food and laughter, hospitality and conversation, sustenance and healing. Something whose stirring in our hearts beckoned us to find ourselves within the warm rhythm of the heart of God. As I reflect on my cleaning efforts and rub soothing lotion on my hands, I can't help but be struck by the impression that any place where life keeps happening day after day, week after week, year after year, hums with possibility. Just like you, Galileo. And where there is possibility, 
there's an opening for capital L life. And that, my friends, is real, gritty, lasting hope in all of its complexity. Tita is the youngest daughter of three, bound by her family's insistence that the youngest girl must never marry, but stay home forever to care for her aging mother. But love doesn't follow the rules, and Tita and Pedro fall in love the instant they see each other. To stay close to Tita, Pedro agrees to marry her older sister, Rosara. As Tita mixes the batter for their wedding cake, she weeps bitter tears of loss and resentment. It is no surprise, then, when the wedding guests become violently, vomitingly ill upon enjoying the cake. It is beautiful and delicious, but Tita's sorrow is baked into every layer. As the years go by, Tita's passion for Pedro deepens. One night, she prepares quail in rose petal sauce for the family's dinner while she fantasizes about her lost love. All her relatives catch the erotic heat at the supper table, none so much as the middle sister, Gertrudis, who after several bites begins to exude lovely pink rose-scented sweat. Gertrudis runs to the shower to cool off, her body heat turning the water to steam before it hits her skin, the shower itself ultimately bursting into flames. She runs from the house naked and is swept up by a revolutionary captain on horseback, pulled from the battlefield by the overpowering scent of her sweat. Gertrudis and the captain make love atop the galloping horse, the supper of quail marinated in Tita's lust, changing the course of her sister's life forever. Tita's passion, Tita's sorrow, Tita's rage, Tita's joy, all these inspired by her love for Pedro, all these infusing the meals she prepares and serves to her loved ones. The chapters of Laura Esquival's novel, Coma Agua para Chocolate, include recipes for the foods that drive the plot. And while the genre of the novel is magical realism, it feels true to life, does it not? At our Friendsgiving meal in the Big Red Barn the other night, we shared stories of the recipes we love, the one written in our grandmother's spidery hand, the secret ingredient that distinguishes this dish from all other iterations of the same, the occasion we remember by taste more than any other sense. And we added new tastes to our chosen family memories, Greg's roasted vegetables, Nady's charro beans, Candace's mac and cheese, each one made with love for church friends, an extension of our own hearts, our own open hands in every bite. The Apostle Paul described the trajectory of Jesus as a steep downward slide 
from the heights of glory where he existed in the very form of God to the lowest low, not only human, but an enslaved human, and not only subject to mortality, but even death by endless humiliation and slow asphyxiation on a Roman cross. Moreover, Paul said, this descent to the depths of human experience was entirely voluntary. Christ emptied himself, he said, choosing this path of abnegation, deciding to open his hands and let go that which he could have held on to for dear life. And why would he do this? Why would anyone release such privilege reject such power, to subject oneself to the indignities of completely avoidable suffering? Well, for love. Because this is what love looks like. And, Paul says, not only for Jesus, but for us. Be of the same mind, he pleads, having the same love, he begs, having the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. I don't know how I'm supposed to love like that. I find I'm always holding on so tightly to things I should have let go a long time ago. And holding carelessly things I should cherish better. But I know that every week, Jesus makes us dinner. He labors in the kitchen. He lights the stove. He sets the table. He stirs all of his passion into the batter. He sweats his suffering into the wine. He bakes his love into every bite. He offers the bread and cup for our supper, our sustenance, and thus infects all who eat with his way of being his way of loving. You see what I'm saying? Not just that he loves us, but that his love is in the food. And when we eat the food, his love becomes our love. Do you believe this? Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support our missional priorities, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Share With Us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace. Peace.